Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale, episode four. I'm Bex. I'm Eason. And welcome to episode four. Which I've already said. Yes. <laughs> Next time, episode five. Goodbye. <laughs> right. This week, um, as we said at the end of the last episode, we were going to be talking a little bit about uh, a new book by Sean Tan. And we'll be kind of going into a bit of his back catalogue of books. But first, uh, what else have we been up to in the last few days? What have you been watching lately? Uh, I've been watching... Um, Actually, I've been watching Class, which we started watching, and then we kind of decided not to watch, and then I decided to just binge watch the whole thing anyway, just to see what happened. And um, also, I've been watching the tail end of season two of Ash vs. Evil Dead. So, we watched episode one of Class a while back. Does it get better? Because I wasn't massively enamoured of the first episode. Yeah, so I was quite excited when I saw the trailer for it and I thought oh it's a new show starting it's worth watching and we watched it and it was it was okay but it it was a bit kind of Doctor Who light in its concept it was actually quite lame that they had to bring the Doctor in at the end of the first episode and to be honest I wasn't that impressed at the beginning it kind of seems to suffer from all of those problems that a lot of British sci-fi shows have when they try and emulate these American sci-fi comedy drama things often set with a, a teen audience in mind. Yeah, so the, there have been attempts in the past to try and do something that's very Buffy-like. I remember watching Hex many years ago. That was ages ago, yeah. Yeah, I remember watching Demons that lasted about six episodes. And I don't know, there's something about when they when they try and directly emulate the way these American shows work that it just it doesn't work here I, I don't know what the problem is I don't know if it's the the writing the how they're shot the the lack of budget whatever it is or, or, or just trying to emulate someone else's formula instead of organically finding your own thing that works do you think that's the problem so trying to emulate a formula rather than come up with something new is it too is it too obvious that they're giving all these nods and winks to Buffy-style TV shows, that it comes across as a poor imitation rather they could have actually come up with their own uh, way of doing things. I think so. I mean, a, a lot of shows take time to find their feet. They're, they're not always at their best in the first few episodes or even their first couple of seasons sometimes. It takes a while to really figure out what they're doing and get going. But there's something slightly disheartening about watching something that feels too much like it's trying to be something else and something that's already been done brilliantly before and you think is this just going to be a rehash of it is it is it is it ever going to really find its niche if it's trying too much to be something else i felt exactly the same way after watching the first episode but having watched the next seven odd episodes <laughs> in quick succession i have to say i'm starting to actually like class quite mm. a lot I don't think it's... Um, it's not a fantastic show. I think it's one of those things which will need this season probably to work out what works, what doesn't work, and where it's going. But I think it developed a really good arc over the eight episodes overall. So the problems that I think existed at the beginning that do last through to the end were the fact that uh, it's the standard problem of having people in their mid-twenties probably playing people in secondary school... Uh, there's a very 
drama school style attitude to the acting. It's all a bit overblown, melodramatic, and and sometimes it is a bit hokey when it needs to be a bit more serious. But it does have a tone which it's starting to establish, where it's probably better than some of the recent episodes of Doctor Who. I mean, there's actually a plot to it. The characters actually become quite interesting. The relationships between all the characters uh, are certainly ones that move beyond the generic uh, tropes that could exist in a show like this. And what's clear is that they have actually thought about it. And I do wonder if the pilot episode was probably written well in advance of the rest of the series. So they were trying to set up a lot of things in the pilot episode and then you know, in the remaining seven episodes, they actually settle into a tone and a plot, which is actually quite interesting. I mean, the effects are really good. The overall plot is quite interesting. And I think, you know, there's a lot more to see. And it's one of those shows where it's only eight episodes. You watch it, it's good. And you kind of think, well, you know, I think it could come back. And I wonder if a lot of the things which are problematic, they'll actually correct in the next uh, in the next season. Um, it's certainly worth... I, well, I would certainly watch the next one. What else have you watched? Uh, Ash versus Evil Dead season two. <laughs> I can't watch that. It's too. It's too gory for me. It goes beyond my. I, I. I know that it's very silly, gory, but it's still beyond my threshold for watching that. Yeah, I have to say this season of Ash versus Evil Dead has probably taken the levels of gore to, you know, ridiculous levels. I mean, some of it is absolutely bonkers. It's very watchable. And it's completely ridiculous. But if you're not a fan of blood and guts style comedy, it is a bit too much, I would say. But it was so much fun. But the strange thing about it is the fact that the first nine of the ten episodes of Ash vs. Evil Dead uh, were fantastic. I think they really, they really played with the Evil Dead formula. They were very gory. It was very funny. They, they kind of really moved the story in a different way to what they could do in the films in what they could do in a you know in a 10 hour tv series um, it was very different to season one there were lots of new characters there was more of a sense of the tv show exploiting the fact it was a tv show rather than constrained to like a 90 minute movie the effects are fantastic uh, bruce campbell is always really really funny the other characters pablo and kelly really great sidekicks and lucy lawless as ruby brilliant as well what was strange was the final episode was a real letdown i don't know what has happened but essentially there are lots of things set up in the first nine episodes which seem to possibly generate an obvious payoff in the 10th and instead that's all been derailed and they have a completely bizarre ending which is very formulaic which is not what you'd expect from a show like this it has all the blood and guts it kind of does the, the evil dead thing by numbers but it doesn't really add much um, and the final the final half of the episode uh, moves away from being an evil dead thing and becomes something which is more any kind of generic comedy horror plot and i didn't really see where it was going and certainly that the last few moments uh, whereas the end of season one uh, led very much into the events of season two this one tries to wrap everything up in a way that will allow them to refresh the show in season three and i don't really understand why or where it's going so i you know i will like to watch series three uh, if and when it appears but it was strange that it's a show that really held the pace for for nine episodes and then 
the finale really let it down a little bit uh, with how it handled the characters, the plot, which I don't think were true to the Evil Dead universe. And the other thing, well, we're right in the middle of at the moment, is the invasion storyline on uh, Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow. We're halfway through, but I think we're going to do a whole episode on that once the crossover is finished. So it'll probably be in a few days once we've finished up with Legends of Tomorrow. Um, But do you have any midpoint thoughts on it? Uh, I'm enjoying it. And despite my slightly negative feelings towards some of these shows at the beginning of the uh, seasons this year, I have to say I'm kind of starting to quite enjoy Legends of Tomorrow. I know, me too. I don't think you're supposed to enjoy it as much as uh, we are. But it's actually very watchable. Yeah. It's becoming quite fun and becoming a bit silly. And I think, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because of the loss of the serious Rip Hunter mm. kind of character at the head of it. They've they've become a show which is slightly more reverent, embracing its slightly absurd trappings of being a time travel show. Yeah. I think I didn't really appreciate how much of a problem rip hunter was within the show until he was gone so he's he's what's sort of lost in time they don't really know where he is at the moment but so he hasn't been in it for pretty much the whole since the first episode yeah. and for some reason it's making it gel a lot better and the new cast members that they've got in are pretty good uh, far more interesting than the hawks were last year you're right it's it's found much more of a niche of humor and really embracing its sort of comic bookness, I think. It's a new term. <laughs> Coined and minted, my friend. <laughs> Coined and minted. So we'll probably do a whole catch-up on not just the invasion crossover, but also how we're finding it so far. Yeah. Even the arrow is its not as bad as it was in the previous season. Mm. I mean, it has got Dolph Lundgren in it, which improves any show. <laughs> it does. Uh uh, all the shows are really good, really promising. They've all improved, actually. And I think, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it in a future episode. I can see these shows starting to come back on track. Hmm. But for now, we're going to mainly talk about the new Sean Tan book, but also some of his old books as well. So uh, let's do that. Let's crack on. Okay, so the main topic in this episode is going to be the new book by Sean Tan, because Mm -hmm. you, Bex, are a Sean Tan fan. (laughs) I am, yes. So what's the new book? It's called uh, The Singing Bones, and I didn't actually realise it was out until we were in Finn Planet the other day and I saw it on the shelf, Um, and I thought, I haven't seen that before, (laughs) so I got it, and it's, it's very interesting, it's quite a departure from the other books of his that I've read. It's it's a very beautiful book. So it's a collection of 75 fairy tales um, that were collected by the Brothers Grimm, uh, who obviously collected way more than that, but uh, he's picked 75 and he's created sculptures 
to represent each one of the 75. Some of the sculptures are quite abstract, some of them represent figures or scenes from the story, and essentially in the book, uh, on every page, on the left-hand page, you have an extract from the fairy tale, just two or three paragraphs of it, um, and it can be from any point of the fairy tale, beginning, middle or end. And then on the right-hand side, there's a beautiful photograph of the sculpture that he has created to represent some element of it. So he's actually done 75-odd individual sculptures related to each of these stories? Yes. yes. Has he? Exp- I mean, so these aren't full stories. Are they well-known fairy tales? or um, Some of them are well-known. I'd say that maybe a dozen of them were ones that I knew very well that are sort of ingrained in popular culture. So Red Riding Hood is in there, but it's called Little Red Cap, uh, Hansel and Gretel, Rapunzel, um, Cinderella. Uh, Sleeping Beauty is in there, but it's called The Briar Rose, I think. It, it really goes back to the roots of the, the stories as they were collected by the Brothers Grimm. Um, so some of them, for example, they represent the sort of old versions of some of the popular stories which have possibly been somewhat sanitised by the Disney versions that we've had since then because mm. um, some of them could be really very, very gruesome. Uh, so some of them are very well known and it's it's easier then to look at the sculpture that he's created and immediately know what it represents without having to read any of the text or read up around the fairy tale itself. So what type of sculptures are these? So I, I was reading a bit about how he did them and apparently it's a mix of um, some kind of papier-mâché and clay that's then painted. But the, the textures that he's able to produce are remarkable because some of them look like stone, some of them look like wood, um, some of them do look like clay. They're, they're very sort of heavily stylized, and if you don't immediately know that much about the fairy tale itself, you can you can possibly tell that it looks like an image of a fox or a horse or a person. But I actually found some of them really fascinating to look at the image and think, oh my gosh, what is the story? Because I didn't know much about it. And because you only get a couple of paragraphs of the story, even when it's the end, it still doesn't you still don't feel like you really know everything about it. And I've actually gone away and looked up more about some of the stories particularly the ones where I found the image so striking. I I read an interview with him where he was talking about how he found these fairy tales to be almost somewhat have a dreamlike quality to them in which they weren't they weren't representing something real but they were representing something sort of very old and universal and dreamlike and so he wanted the sculptors themselves to have that quality as well so that they're not necessarily a perfect representation of something but that carry the essence of the story and that has a, a, a universal application which is why some of these fairy stories carry across cultures across centuries and have been retold in different forms and exactly yeah. exactly and it's it's very interesting to read some of the ones that have changed um, particularly some of the ones that have been made less horrifying <laughs> um, when they've been retold. So, for example, you get something like um, Cinderella or Snow White, where in the original story, incredibly gruesome things happen to the villains of the story. 
um, which don't necessarily then get replicated in some of the 20th century cartoon versions that you get of them because it's really quite horrifying. For example, someone being made to dance themselves to death in red hot shoes. They're not going to put that in a Disney movie. Is that like the bit in Buffy? In Once More With Feeling? <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, it is a bit, yeah. Mm. And then others, they have survived with the horror of them intact. So, for example, Hansel and Gretel, which always ends with the witch being cooked in her own oven. That's horrific. But that stays in the story. Um, even when it gets retold now, that bit hasn't been sanitised. So it's quite interesting to see which bits get tidied up and which bits just get left as they are. And actually, some of the fairy tales that I hadn't encountered before did tend to be the ones that either have a horrific ending to them or are just incredibly violent. That have never been put forward as <laughs> ones with wide appeal, I presume. Exactly. What well, Ones where the, no amount of um, tidying them up could mean that you could make a PG movie out of it <laughs> in any respect. So there's, there's a few that I, I went away and looked up all the details of the story. There, were, there are some more that I want to go and look up as well. Um, he's put a reading list in the back of the book, actually. It's called The Singing Bones. Um, and The Singing Bone is also the name of one of the stories in the book uh, about two brothers who um, go out to... Let me see if I, if I remember this right. They go out to kill uh, a beast that is terrorising people. And the younger brother kills the beast. And they're going back to the king to claim their reward. But the older brother uses a bone from the beast to club the younger brother to death. And then he takes the body of the beast back to the king and is held as a hero. But eventually the bones of the younger brother are found. And somebody fashions one of his bones into a horn. And when it's blown, the horn speaks the truth about the murder. And the older brother is killed, I think. And the younger brother's bones are buried in a graveyard. It's a very happy story. <laughs> it's a very happy story. It's a very happy story. <laughs> the sculpture of that one is very striking, actually. It's of the two brothers walking, the younger brother walking ahead, the older brother walking behind, and the older brother has raised the bone right up above his head. So you see the moment just before he's about to do it, sort of frozen in this sculpture. Uh, yeah, it's very creepy. So there's, what, 75-odd stories here? Yeah. So are there any that are your favourite ones? So I really like the sculpture for Hansel and Gretel. You've got the, the gingerbread house, which is this sort of plain white house studded with these shiny, candy-coloured, sort of metallic-looking baubles. And you see Hansel and Gretel, who are less than half the height of the house, I guess, sitting in front of it, eating them. And then the figure of the witch herself is standing behind the house, but she is easily twice the height of the house and sort of looming up over it. He does tend to play with scale a lot in his work. It's something that comes up again and again in some of the other books that he's done, which are, are more artwork um, rather than sculpture. But it's it just gives you this sort of horrifying image of this person looming over the scene who appears, you know, four times the height that she could possibly actually be. It's very creepy. Yeah. So that, that's one of my favourites. And because it's such a well-known story, you can look at the image and immediately know what it is. You wouldn't even need the text on the left-hand page to, to look at it and say, 
that's Hans and Gretel, that's Gingerbread House, that's The Witch. One of my other favourite ones, and this is really one of the most horrible ones in the whole the whole book, is called Mother Trudy. And I'd never heard of this before. It's the story of a girl who is told by her parents never to go to this woman's house. Um, I'm just getting the image up now so that well, so that you can see it. Unfortunately, <laughs> if you are if you're interested, you can probably Google it. So the little girl, she goes to the house anyway, even though she's been warned not to. And when she looks through the window, she thinks she can see a devil with flames coming out of its head. And she knocks on the door and this old woman answers. And she says, oh, I was so scared. I thought that I saw the devil inside the house. And the old woman says, oh, yes, that was me. And she turns the girl into a log and throws her on the fire to keep her warm. The end. It's a bit harsh. <laughs> it's a bit harsh. And it's the kind of story that doesn't really have a moral to it other than be terrified of people, basically. Stranger danger. Yeah. But what strikes me most about it is not only that I'd never heard this fairy tale before, but the image that comes with it is absolutely beautiful in a horrifying way. So you have this strange kind of half lizard, half human type figure sitting at a chair and its head looks like burnished gold with orange flecks on it all spiking out of the top. And then it's sitting in front of the fire and the fire is also the same burnished gold spikes hmm. uh, because the log on the fire was the little girl before she got turned into a log and the image is just beautiful but horrifying that's a very happy story <laughs> so that was one of my favorites and another one uh, which i hadn't heard before but reminded me a lot of a fairy tale that i had heard before is called the singing springing lark and the sculpture for this one is a sort of dark grey bluish lion and sitting on the lion's tail is a little golden bird. The, the extract that you get in the book is from quite early on in the story where the lion makes the man promise him the first thing that he meets when he gets to his house and the man agrees in order to have his life spared and he hopes that when he gets home it will be one of his cats or dogs that comes running up to him uh, but of course it's his daughter who comes running up to him so he has to give the lion his daughter and I went away and read the rest of the fairy tale and essentially the the lion is only a lion during the day and during the night he's a human and he's a prince who's had some kind of curse put on him and one night the the youngest daughter who is who has married him uses a candle in order to see him clearly in the night to see him in his human form and it causes the curse that is upon him to turn him into a bird and then eventually the girl she wants to get him back so she goes on a quest and I think she meets various uh, people who help her including the winds help her and eventually she's able to rescue her prince from the clutches of the people who cursed him who are trying to make him marry a foreign princess and she's able to rescue him and he turns back into his human form permanently and they live happily ever after 
and it reminded me a lot of this Norwegian fairy tale that I read a few years ago called East of the Sun, West of the Moon, which is about the youngest daughter of a very poor family who agrees to marry a bear who lives in this sort of palace carved inside of a mountain so that her family can have uh, the wealth that they need in order to live happy lives. But the bear is only a bear during the day, any human at night. And a lot of this, although there are substantial differences, there are some core similarities. So the girl uses a candle to look at her husband in the night in his human form, and this affects the curse that is upon him, and he's taken away from her. And he's supposed to marry the daughter of this evil troll who lives in a castle. And the castle is located east of the sun and west of the moon, and it's meant to imply that it is impossible to reach. But the girl goes on a quest to get her back, get him back, and uh, she meets some old women who give her some artefacts that she later uses in her quest. And she meets the four winds, and they help her reach the castle where he is. And there she, she uses her cunning to rescue him from his marriage to the troll's daughter, and he turns back into a human, and they live happily ever after. And I, I just found it really interesting how much these sort of motifs come up again and again. Um, I have no idea which story came first or how one might have influenced another or if they just came totally independently from each other. But it's it's fascinating how stories evolve and adapt and particularly a lot of these fairy tales and folk tales that were probably you know, handed down orally from, from one person to another. So, yeah, those, those are probably my favourite ones from the book. So... I've only read a couple of Sean Tan books. I read Eric, which is very, very short, <laughs> and one called The Red Tree. Yeah. I think that's called. You read a lot more of these. So, how does this new one, The Singing Bones, differ from his earlier work? So, the earlier work uh, is mostly artwork. He's, a, he's an artist, an illustrator, and a writer. So, um, you've got things like Eric, which was actually the very first. Um, one of his that I ever read, which is a combination of artwork and very kind of sparse prose that moves the story forward. And then you've got something like The Red Tree, where it's almost really a picture book with very, very minimal amounts of text to it. But they have these very dreamlike, surreal qualities to them of a combination of seeing something vast and beautiful and monstrous in the mundane ordinary day-to-day life that people live it's it's almost like looking at reality through a, a slightly warped glass so that you're seeing a version of reality that you don't recognize and yet you recognize it as being how you sometimes feel about ordinary life there is like a real darkness to some of it though isn't there I mean it's not Mm. like a none of his books seem to be well the ones I've read don't seem to be particularly cheery although they might often end on an optimistic note Mm. uh, there is a a strange otherworldly darkness that hangs over it which Mm. might actually inform the fact that the you know the artwork of these things is it's strange to look at it's it really draws you in it's quite unsettling sometimes mm. it's not scary or weird it's just it it 
it taps into something um as a reader it kind of makes you feel like you immediately are engaging with this story in some way but they are often not sort of happy children's books yeah although they you know that's not to say that they're not in any way uh, not worthwhile they're really really insightful books to to read and look at mm. um i mean the artwork is absolutely incredible on these things um so in those books does he actually write the stories as well or are they written by somebody else yeah so he writes them as well um in the red tree uh it's it's essentially a story about depression i suppose and um one of the things that he often does is is playing with scale where you see the mundane minutiae of someone's life suddenly contrasted against these vast overwhelming landscapes of the world around them and particularly in the red tree they're often emotional landscapes where he he conjures up these slightly surreal images for example there's an image of the girl uh, walking down the street and it's viewed from very far away so she's very small and you have these big buildings all around her and there's a giant fish hovering over her following her down the street casting a shadow over her and you think why why a fish of all, <laughs> of all the things you know most people would put it as a you know a dark cloud following you around but he's just got this giant trout hovering over her as she goes down the street um but it's utterly memorable and some of them are really emotional landscapes rather than physical ones so one of my favorite images in the book is uh she's still standing at the start of what looks like a sort of three-dimensional board game and the path leads around um sort of bending and twisting to what appears to be this monstrous sort of factory shaped like a, a sort of demon i suppose everything is very strange and industrial and all around the image are little boxes of what looks like uh, the kind of path that you would take in a board game but all of them with just horrible kind of sad strange images on them and if you look very closely in the image the girl is holding a six-sided dice and every side is a six so no matter what she rolls, she's going to have to keep moving forward. <laughs> and it, I, I love, I love the way it plays with things feeling emotionally, but also physically overwhelming. It's, it's a really beautiful book. It's, it's not a long book. It's, I, I mean, you, you can, you could read it as a child, or you could read it as an adult. And I mean, I remember when I was a kid, some of my favorite books were actually in retrospect really quite dark Hmm. i think it it's it's wrong to to think that books that you're going to give children to read have to be completely happy and upbeat all the time and that they can't have any darkness in them and kids might actually relate to them as well because Hmm. maybe they're unusual in that they do tap into not this perma happy uh, kind of emotional side as mm. well. I mean, they. I mean, like I said, I think, you know, they are relatively optimistic at the end. Mm. They just deal with the complexity of how these characters are feeling, how they're experiencing thing, and what and how they perceive the world around them, um, as well. So the two 
books which I haven't read, but I know are probably amongst Sean Town's most famous ones, are probably The Arrival and The Lost Thing. Yeah, so The Arrival, I think, is probably the thing that he's best known for. Um, it's a completely wordless book, so I think it's been published all over the world. And it's a story, it's really a story of a man who leaves his homeland and his family and travels to a new city to try and build a life, find a job, in the hope that one day his family can follow him. And it's it's designed to be a story that is in many ways universal to the experience of human migration. Uh, so although in the city that he goes to you can see in the architecture references to New York or Sydney or London or all these places, there is nothing there that says this is this place in the world, this is this place in time. And one of the very clever things he does is to make this city very odd and surreal to the reader as well. So, for example, all of the writings on the signs are in a language that does not exist. So for us as the reader, we are as perplexed at, at encountering these things as, as the man is when he first moves there. Um, some of the technology just seems surreal and inexplicable. And the, the architecture is occasionally very um, sort of overpowering and, and strange. Uh, everyone in this place seems to have some kind of pet that follows them around everywhere. And shortly after he finds a place to live, he too finds this animal who comes and joins them. And I suppose it's like a cross between a, a mouse and a dog and a bird. It's a, it's a very strange thing. Not what I was expecting. No. And like I said, it's, it's, it's completely wordless. And it, it follows him all the way from, from leaving his home to moving to the city and building a life. And occasionally he meets other people who have also moved to the city from elsewhere. And you see in two or three pages a flash of their story as well, of how they came to leave wherever they were from and go there. And some of them are these nightmarish visions, which they, for me, they immediately recall certain historical events, but you can easily see how they could be interpreted in so many different ways by different people for whom they would have certain, feel that they have certain references in them. So, for example, the man himself in the place where he comes from, all that you really see of it are these buildings that go on and on in this big city and these dark streets. And then moving through the streets, you see this spiky tail of some never-ending leviathan just winding its way around the streets. And it, it, it conjures up so many different thoughts of what it might be, and yet it isn't anything specific. Um, and there, there's another story where he meets someone who tells their own miniature story of, of how they came to be there and you see them uh, running from these sort of giant human beings where their feet are larger than the people are and they're carrying these huge vacuum cleaners and they're just hoovering people up off the streets it's it's really very disturbing at times but again that shouldn't put anyone off reading it or giving it to their kids because it's a beautiful beautiful book and it is, it's very hopeful, despite the occasional moments of horror that you get in there. It is a book that is essentially one of hope, of 
the way that people will, you know, never stop rebuilding their lives and um, and moving on and uh, finding new friendships, finding ways to live. It's it's probably the book that he is most known for. I think it's it's been very widely read. Um, I heard that they're talking about making it into a film, but I don't know how far along the road that is. You, you can see how it could become a very surreal and unusual film, but there's something very beautiful about the the style of the artwork in it, just as a picture book. Um, the way some of the images, they appear almost like photographs and frames. And yeah, I, I would definitely recommend anyone uh, who is interested in, in graphic novels or, or picture books or anything to, uh, to give that one a go. And the other one, The Lost Thing, that was actually one of his first. And I think they did make a short film out of this. I think it might even won some awards. It's, it's a very early book and it's very interesting that you can see in The Lost Thing a lot of the visual tropes that he comes back to again and again, particularly in Tales from Outer Suburbia. So is The Lost Thing one of his first ones? Yeah, The Lost Thing was very early on um, in his career. And it's about uh, this young man who is down at the beach one day and he notices this just strange looking, not quite a machine, not quite an animal thing, just sitting on the beach, completely lost. Uh, No one seems to own it. It doesn't seem to know where to go. He takes it home, his parents don't want it around, but for the most part everyone just ignores it. They don't really pay it any attention unless their attention is drawn to it. And he tries to find somewhere for this lost thing to be. And you, you, you see in this the beginnings of this very dark take on suburbia that he keeps coming back to again and again. So it's clearly this suburban town by the sea um, Sean Town is from Australia, so you see a lot of the influence of having these big cities by the by the coast um, over and over again in his work. And there's something very unnerving about the society that you see just from the observation of things in the background and the way that things seem to work. It's, I suppose, got touches of a slightly Orwellian system going on in the background of people's lives everything's very mechanized um everything is is very bureaucratic but in a in a surreal and unnerving way it has i guess it has echoes of things like uh, the movie brazil yeah as well as you were describing that's exactly what i was thinking yeah. yeah and when you come to something like tales from outer suburbia which is a collection of stories eric is actually one of the stories that's in there I'm not sure if any of the other stories in there were ever released individually. Eric is the longest story in there. Um, But it's stories of people living in this strange suburban town. And it continually has this same uh, slightly nightmarish concept of the way the society is structured going on in the background. And in some stories, it's a lot more overt than others. Um, there's one story that seems to be about mind control and strawberry ice cream, which is very strange. There's another, it's one which I really loved, which is about uh, two brothers 
who argue about this street map that their father has. Um, some of the some of the stories in Tales from Outer Suburbia are much more text heavy with illustrations, and some of them are much more the artwork just with a small amount of text. This is one that has a lot of text in it. And these two brothers, they have this map, this street map of the town that their dad has, and it just seems to stop. And they argue about why it stops. One brother says it stops because there are pages missing from the map. And the other says, no, it stops because the town must stop, because otherwise why would the map stop? And so they decide to sneak off on an adventure together to go to the place at the edge of the final page of the map and just see what's there, see which one of them is right. And so they they go off on this adventure through a suburban landscape, which is one of one of these beautiful things that you get, particularly with stories with some young protagonists where something as mundane as travelling across the city on your own is a massive adventure. It feels like you're travelling hundreds of miles by yourself. It feels like you're doing something frightening and brave and uh, when you've got a companion with you then you're you're in on this adventure together and it captures that spirit. It, it reminded me in some ways of a short story from Dubliners by James Joyce called An Encounter which is about two friends from school who bunk off school and decide to travel together across Dublin. And it's it's a similar thing in that something that, to us as adults, feels like a completely normal thing. You just go to the other side of the city, but when you're a kid, it it feels like you're doing something. It's a big grand adventure. Exactly, on, yeah. exactly. And the the visuals in that, um, the the illustrations for that story um, are really beautiful as well. A lot of it also comes back to the way that he plays with scale as well because you get these small close-up images of individual people living a suburban life which are sometimes then contrasted with these grand landscapes of the city that they're in in which everything around them just seems so surreal it's almost quite frightening mm. and inexplicable and I think it it captures something about how there is something I guess something sinister about things being mundane there is something that I think a lot of people find slightly unnerving when everything is the same there are some there are some images that I, I can really remember where you see street after street of rooftop of houses stretching out into the distance and they're all the same every house the same every rooftop the same it reminds me of how unusual it feels when you walk down a street and you realise that every house around you is exactly the same. When the, these these new developments that get made and it's just, you could get lost because you can't figure out where you are. It's all a bit Stepford. Exactly, exactly. I read an interview with him once where he talked about growing up in a suburb of Perth and he described it as not being that far removed from the sort of weird suburban mundanity of Edward Scissorhands, yeah. where there is something that feels not quite right about... When everything is so uniform and organised and planned out. And... Exactly. And this suburban world that he has created, which the lost thing feels very much like it exists in the same world as Tales from Outer Suburbia, in the sort of nightmarish 
slightly Orwellian society with these bizarre pieces of technology around them, it somehow captures, I suppose, the, the darkness that, that people sometimes feel when that might not be how things are, but they, f they can feel that way when everything is the same and every day is the same and everywhere that you go things feel the same. Um, in, in the story of the two brothers who go off across town to uh, find the edge of the map, at one point they describe how they're not sure how far they've gone because every block all the shops are the same and all the buildings look the same. Hmm. And you can do that now, you can go from one town to another and all the shops will be the same and all the apartment buildings will look the same. And it's unnerving. It's a bit Truman Show. It's a bit Wayward Pines. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I suppose, um, yeah, we've been talking about all these Sean Tan books. For those of you who are interested, uh, the ones we have read and been talking about in this episode are, which ones? There's The Arrival, The Singing Bones, which is the recent one, The Lost Thing, Tales from Outer Suburbia, and The Red Tree. And there are a couple of others, aren't there? Um, yeah, there are a couple of his that I haven't read, actually, which I need to... Uh, Shame to on you! <laughs> um, you can you can get Eric as its own miniature book, um, but it's also collected in Tales from Outer Suburbia. Although, bizarrely, there are very small differences. Oh, really? So it hasn't just been reproduced as a small book? No, so there is at least one image in the small book which is missing in Tales from Outer Suburbia. So I, I, no I noticed it missing. But also the way that the pictures are laid out, because the book is very small, it's about the size of your hand. Um, so you get a lot of sequences of images where it's one image per page. But then in Tales from Outer Suburbia, some of those very small images are four images per page. And just by changing the way that your eye moves from one to the other and the speed with which you encounter them, I think it changes something about how you feel the flow of the story. It's, it's it's a strange thing to see it reproduced in a different way because you hardly ever get that happening. So, yeah, I, I would heavily recommend Tales from Outer Suburbia. It's very funny, very creepy book. The Arrival is wonderful and The Singing Bones, I really enjoyed it. I'm probably going to read it through again very soon and then choose which fairy tales I want to go and look up again and find out more about. Awesome source. <laughs> right, so that's it for episode four of Time for Cakes and Ale. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TFCAA or on Facebook, etc. and all the usual places. Next time, do we have a plan for episode five? Could be one of two things, because uh, we will be going to see Rogue One very soon. That is true. Rogue One is out on Thursday, a couple of days away from when we're recording this. Yeah. And we will also very soon get to the end of the invasion crossover of all the DC shows. So... We will probably do them both, but which one we do first uh, remains to be seen. Or we'll do neither and just talk about The Prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> Completely out of sequence. No, um, uh, Yeah, I think uh, one of those would be good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my initial feelings about Rogue One, 
I've watched a couple of the trailers. I've tried not to see too much. And to be honest, as a result of that, I know very little about what's going to happen in that movie. Um, but it'd be weird to see one of these films which are part of this expanded Star Wars universe mm. rather than one of the main plot lines. I think from that perspective, it'd be kind of cool to see whether it works because there are going to be a, clearly a bucket load more of these Star Wars universe movies. The other side of it is, you know, it's actually a good film. So Gareth Edwards, he did... He did Godzilla, didn't he? Yeah. And did he do Monsters, Monsters as well? Monsters, yeah. He didn't, he didn't do the, the sequel, did he? Dark no. Continent or whatever. Yeah, it, it's kind of intriguing to see what somebody like him could do in a in the Star Wars universe. So yeah, I think we'll probably end up talking about that uh, as soon as possible after after it's out. And yeah, it's actually quite exciting, the invasion crossover. That could be kind of cool as well. Mm. So uh, that's it for now. Next yeah. time episode five. Mm, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>